This is Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Bungani in Washington. Thank you so much for joining us today. This week, two young Nigerian women abducted as schoolgirls nine years ago by Boko Haram, a jihadi militant group, have been rescued. The girls were part of a group of over 270 schoolgirls abducted from a school in the town of Chibok. They were at the foot of the forest for, for quite a while. In that period, the total number they took was 276. But um, as they were, because they went so slowly, girls were jumping off tree um, out of the truck. They were hanging onto trees and so on. And 219 girls were actually taken into Sambisa Forest. That is Aisha Mohammed Oyebode, an activist, author, and co-founder of the Bring Back Our Girls movement, a campaign that was initiated in 2014 in response to the kidnapping. Aisha is the author of a new book, The Stolen Daughters of Chibok. And from Morocco, upfront correspondent Hannah Bezad asks the question, will regenerative farming replace conventional farming? Hannah speaks to two young entrepreneurs working and advocating for regenerative farming and food sovereignty in the North African country of Morocco. But first, as always, let's hear from you, our listeners. We asked you, how do you treat mental health in your community? Yes, there is a stigma towards mental healthy people in our community because a lot of people feel like when someone is mentally uh, challenged, that person might, might be bringing disturbances in the community, so they tend to be isolating him or her. They tend maybe not to be engaging them into anything else that's happening in the community because they feel like they can't provide or they're useless. Those people are deemed dangerous to people. There are vivid examples that are people with mental health issues have ended up attacking, killing people. So the stigma is there because people are scared or they are afraid to get closer to them because they're afraid of being attacked. I think there is um, stigma towards um, mental health in our community because uh, those people, they are considered to be dangerous. Whenever you meet them, they turn out to be violent. So it um, scares people to maybe be close to them. That's why they are stigmatized. A mental stigma is almost in each community, more especially here in Africa, because I think we've been brainwashed by our fathers that are somebody who is mentally ill is regarded as somebody who's cursed. So obviously we would want we wouldn't want to associate with that person. But uh, what is required is for maybe the community, government, or stakeholders involved, they should do some sensitization campaign awareness to uh, sensitize people that mental illness is just like any disease that people have like malaria and the like. I think uh, the community or everyone else wouldn't want to be associated with someone who is mentally not okay who is, because they can't contribute anything to the society. They think it's a bore. They think it's a waste of time. So yes, that is taking. And many thanks to all of you for your opinions. This is Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vongani. This week... Two young Nigerian women abducted as schoolgirls nine years ago by Boko Haram, that is a militant group operating in northern Nigeria, have been rescued. The girls were part of a group of over 270 schoolgirls abducted from a school in Bono as they were getting ready for their exams. 
Their kidnapping sparked global outrage and led to the hashtag Bring Back Our Girls social media campaign. And one of the founders of the campaign is Aisha Mohammed Oyebode, an activist focusing on women's and girls' rights. Aisha just released a book titled The Stolen Daughters of Chibok. She joins me on the show from Lagos to talk about the book and why it is important to keep the memories of the girls alive. Aisha, thank you so much for joining us today here on The Voice of America. So this month marks nine years since the kidnapping of the Chibok girls by the Boko Haram militant group. Uh, Can you take us back to that day, April 2014? What happened? Okay, so it was in the early hours of April 14th to 15, so it was late at night. Now, what had happened was that um, the government secondary school um, in Chibok was actually being used as an examination center. And the early hours of the morning, Boko Haram came in, they were looking for a block-making machine, you know, machines for making bricks for houses, and they were looking for food. And then they saw this large number of girls, and they just couldn't believe it. So for a few hours, they didn't know what to do. They kept calling their commanders. Some of them said, let's burn the school down. Let's burn the girls with the school. And somebody said, you know what, let's take them to Shekau. Shekau is the leader of uh, Boko Haram at that time. He will know what to do with them. So they offloaded all the um, um, food and all the other material that they had sequestered and put the girls in there. And it took them almost three days to get to Sambisa Forest. Um, In fact, when they got to Sambisa Forest, they were at the foot of the forest for, for quite a while. In that period, the total number they took was 276. But um, as they were, because they went so slowly, girls were jumping off tree um, out of the truck. They were hanging onto trees and so on. And 119 girls were actually taken into Sambisa Forest. Um, um, so that would be around April 16, 17. Oh, um, 2014. 2014. Yeah. And those girls were in there for, it took a year plus a month before the first girl came out. Mm. At that time, most people, you know, you heard, you know, about the Bring Back Our Girls. There Absolutely. Was agitation, yes. But none of the first girl didn't come out until a month and a half. How, how did the news of their kidnapping break at the time? What was the reaction inside the country? Okay, so what was interesting was, because we always ask, where were you? Most of us remember where we were. That morning... That's on the morning of April 14. Two bombs had gone off in the capital city in Abuja. And those bombs were attributed to Boko Haram. So we're just reeling from the shock of that. Nobody was thinking of, you know, um, you know, maybe anything else, you know, that could have been going on. So as the news started filtering in, it was shocking, you know, because we're all dealing with this bomb explosion. And then they, people, the news started filtering in that girls had been taken in a school in Chibok. And initially, you know, we thought, okay, maybe a few girls. And then as the numbers were coming out, it became staggering. But, you know, the problem, you know, with a lot of these kind of situations, because there's a rural community, there's a lot of denial. No girls were taken, girls were not taken. It's not true. So it took us a while until probably the next day because before people really began to understand you know, the magnitude of this um, situation. And that was when the numbers started to come in. And, I mean, it was staggering. It just seemed unbelievable. And I think it took many of us about a day or two. I think everybody was just reeling from the shock because that's the largest number 
that has been taken in any school, I mean, in, in, in Nigeria. So it was quite, quite shocking. Was this the first kind of uh, such kidnappings by Boko Haram? Because, you know, that group had been operating uh, for, I guess, a couple of years in, in that region. Was this the first time they had actually targeted young girls? So up till then, they were targeting young girls, but it, it, in, in smaller numbers. So what would happen is that they would go into communities, they would go into homes. So, for example, if um, because one of the things that we now know was that they needed to um, find wives for their foot soldiers. So they would go into homes and they would abduct girls, but maybe two, three, four, five. I mean, if any there was any incident that was that large was a month and a half before Chibok in a neighboring state, they had gone in there and they had killed some young boys and they had locked the girls away in in the assembly hall and said to them, go home, school is not a place for girls. So we knew that they had started targeting girls, but not for abduction. This was the largest of its kind, you know, that has ever happened in Nigeria. Of course, after that, they did start to kidnap a lot more. But at that particular time, that was the first time. Does it say something that they actually targeted girls, most importantly, an educational institution? Oh, definitely. You know, their, their, their name, Boko Haram, if you translate it literally, it means that education is forbidden or education is a sin. So it was clear that they had a problem with Western education. And that was why they were targeting schools. Before the Chibok kidnaps, they had killed a lot of teachers. They had burnt down a lot of schools. So it was not an unusual thing. But they was not the Chibok school was targeted, like I said, for food and other equipment and not for girls. But of course, when they found the girls, they then sort of realized that they could abduct those girls, yes. So what is the fate of uh, of these girls, 276, you say, were kidnapped? Uh, were they ever located or returned? What is their status uh, and the status of the Bring Back Our Girls campaign? So in the first few days, 57 girls managed to escape. 219 were taken into Sambisa Forest. Um, of those 219 in the last um, nine years, some were negotiated for, some escaped, some were just found by, by the military. Um, the total um, now that are still missing are 92, well, 90 girls, because believe it or not, two days ago, two more girls um, were found. Um, so right now, today, as a today's count, is 90 girls that are still missing. What happens to these girls when they're kidnapped? Do, they, do we have any idea on what? they use these girls for? So they use them as domestic slaves. They use them as um, sexual slaves. Some of the girls are married off to Boko Haram commanders. Some of them are married off to foot soldiers. Uh, Many of them have come back with children. Um, Some of them have worked as um, auxiliary nurses. um, So they've used them for a wide variety of um, roles. And some of them have been used as, um, like I said, domestic. So they work for the wives of the commanders, the ones, but majority of them, um, especially the ones that have stayed longer, have been married off, yes. We are chatting with Mohammed Aisha Oyebode, an activist. Aisha just released a book titled The Stolen Daughters of Chibok.
She's talking to us about her new book and the ninth anniversary of the kidnapping of the young girls at a school in the town of Chibok in Bono State. As many of you remember at the time, the kidnapping sparked protests in Nigeria and around the world, with many people demanding that the Nigerian government takes stronger action to rescue the girls. What are some of the conditions in Nigeria that led to this type of kidnappings of girls, targeting of girls or young women in general? Well, you know, there's a general problem because we feel as if there's not enough protection for women and girls in school. And generally, in the northern part of the country where Chibok is located, we have one of the highest rates of um, out-of-school children in, 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 in the world. So when you talk about out-of-school children in Nigeria, the largest concentration are in northern Nigeria. And then the largest concentration of women who are not um, allowed to be educated are also in northern Nigeria. So there's a general risk anyway for women and girls when they go to school. And I think Boko Haram, the existence of Boko Haram now compounded the risk because Boko Haram now legitimized you know, the terrorizing of women and girls in school, the abduction of women and girls, and forced marriage um, when they take them away. And they've sort of also legitimized their use as sexual slaves, like I said, and as domestic slaves, yes. With all the resources uh, that the Nigerian government has, the Nigerian military has, why has it not been able to rescue the girls? It's actually one of the things that has confounded us as the bring back our girls. We've never been able to quite understand why it's so challenging, especially because even though we call Sambisa a forest, it's actually savanna land. It's not rainfall like you have here in the southern part of the country. So which means that I, under um, normal circumstances, when you have a cluster of women and girls like that, you should be able to see them on, on a satellite. But we believe that there's just no, the will wasn't there. You know, the will, you know, to rescue those girls. And, it's, it's, and that's why even up to last month, another 80 women and girls were abducted from a state, Zamfara state in, in northern Nigeria. So it's almost as there's a general feeling of neglect. And, you know, that's something that we've sort of spoken out against, we have um, campaigned against, we have um, marched against, and we just keep insisting that there must be some kind of responsibility and accountability for women and girls, especially when girls have chosen to go to school. Mm. You know, we need to be able to protect them. And, and you know, I, I, I want to ask you whether the conditions have changed that led to their kidnappings, but let me first ask you about education. Uh, how did the kidnapping impact education in, in northern Nigeria, especially for young women? So especially in, in the, the, the northeast, um, which is where Chibok is um, located um, in Bono State, um, immediately after the kidnappings, a lot of the young kids refused, were afraid to go back to school. A lot of the siblings of the young girls who were abducted did not want to go to school. But one of the things you must say about the government of that state is that they have, as much as is possible, continued to um, create an enabling environment. They've tried as much as is possible to secure the schools and they've continued to sort of advocate that uh, the women and the girls go back back to school. But it's still a problem. It's still a right. problem in the northeast. It's still a problem in the northwest, you know. And um, it's such a shame because really, um, if you look at communities like Chibok, where 
most of the parents of those girls are illiterate. So for them, it was important that their daughters got an education and they were willing to um, save whatever it was that was required in terms of financial resources. And many of them are very poor, poor, poor families. Um, if you read in my book, the girls made money from plaiting hair, from sewing clothes, you know. Um, and um, so the parents were able to just put together, you know, whatever it is of their resources that they could gather to make sure that their girls got an education. And then you can imagine that those girls were now kidnapped. The last, most of them were in the last year of secondary school. So the parents felt that their work was almost done. And then these girls get abducted. So it was very disheartening and it was worrying for us. And I think it was one of the reasons why as women, because if you notice the Bring Back Our Girls movement is a coalition of a lot of women, we just felt absolutely important to make the point that girls must be returned to school. It's, you know, nine years later, uh, have the conditions in these areas changed that led to their kidnappings? Is there still risk that this group or any other group could carry out such a crime in Nigeria? Oh, definitely. There's no doubt about it. Like I said, just last month, 80 women and girls were kidnapped. In the last couple of years, you know, thousands of women and girls have been kidnapped from schools. So the conditions have not changed. In fact, if anything, I would have thought in in more recent times it has become worse. Um, you know, um, and it's not just Boko Haram now. Um, you have a lot of other fringe groups who are also abducting women and girls um, uh, from school, yes, and boys as well, by the way. And you write that the, these girls, the stolen girls, were given numbers instead of being referred by their name. Why is that? What was well, the intention? I think what it is generally is that I suppose... It's one of the things I talk about, you know, sometimes, you know, it's very easy to become desensitized um, when this kind of situation happens and people don't focus on the, the individuals that are affected. So we just see this is a large group. We're talking numbers. We're talking 276, 219. We're talking, you know, the um, 82 that were negotiated for 21. But we're not seeing that behind each number is a whole family, is a whole community that has been devastated by these abduct- abductions. Mothers have died. Fathers have died you know, since these abductions. So you can imagine what we're talking about. And until we are able to see them as humans, as people who belong to a family, who belong to a community, we'll just continue to see them as numbers. And the problem with seeing people as numbers is that then the responsibility to rescue them and to bring them back becomes diminished or it's easier to justify inaction Mm -hmm. because we are not going behind the numbers to see the people that are affected by this tragedy. Do you think these girls uh, have given up on the hopes that they will return back to their families, given that they've been there for nine years now? Do they even think that the government is looking for them anymore? Have you spoken to some that have returned? What is their impression? And that is what is the most incredible thing about this book. At the time when we wrote the book, it was just to catalog the stories from the perspective of the mothers when none of the girls had returned. But when some of the girls returned, for me, the first question I always ask, because I think is, you know, I'm so haunted by it. I wanted, I want to know, and I wanted to know at the beginning, did you know we were looking for you? Did you know that the whole world was looking for you? And they would say to us, no. 
They, and they would then say to us, every time the Nigerian government bombed the Boko Haram camps, Boko Haram would say to them, you see, nobody wants you back. That's why they're bombing us. And, um, you know, they want you to die. And I said, but we were all looking for you. And I said, you know, um, I would then show them the book. And then I'll show to them the stories, what their mothers said about them in their absence. And then it was then that they began to actually realize that people were looking for them. Yes. Mm. Now, finally, Aisha, you say that the the ordeal, the fate of, of the Chibo girls in a way, is a metaphor for the state of women in, in Nigerian society. What do you mean by that? What I mean is that women who come from um, rural communities, who from come from poor communities, I'm talking about metaphor as regards um, education, our inability to protect women in schools. I'm talking about the fact that women can be abducted. I'm talking about forced marriage, which happens not only in conflict, it's not um, peculiar to Boko Haram, it happens in non-conflict societies. I'm talking about sexual um, slavery. All of these are things that happen to women generally within our society. So the Chiba girls are a metaphor for um, women generally, especially in parts of northern Nigeria. And finally, in just a minute, Aisha, what do you want the world to learn from this book, uh, to know about the the Chibo girls? That there's still 90, at the last count, 90 girls still missing. And for every one Chibo girl that was returned, 10 other women were found, 10 other women and girls were found and brought back. So we need the world to understand that this scourge has not gone away. Women and girls need to be protected. And the right to have an education is a human right. And we cannot afford for groups like Boko Haram to deter our women and girls from getting the education that they need. That was Aisha Mohammed Oyebode. She is the author of the new book titled The Stolen Daughters of Chibok. She joined me on the show from Lagos. This is Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vongani. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Border Crossings. Join host Larry London. Larry London. On Border Crossings, VOA's only worldwide music request hour. Every weekday at 1500 Universal. Tune in for the biggest hits and amazing artists. Win prizes and get the latest news from exclusive celebrity interviews. Send your requests to Facebook at VOA Larry London. Twitter at Border Crossings or Instagram at Border Crossings VOA. Welcome back. This is Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vongani. And let's go to North Africa in Morocco, where our correspondent Hannah Bezad asks the question, will regenerative farming replace conventional farming? Hannah speaks to two young entrepreneurs, Ida Benuna, a Moroccan nutritional psychologist and agroecologist. She's the founder of La Finca Agroecology. She also speaks to Alex Karim Howard, the founder of Farm On. 
both Aida and Karim are developing solutions and models that are more holistic towards increasing the resilience of farms in the context of extreme weather changes. Uh, Aida, tell us about this incredible journey of yours. I visited your farm um, and, and I was uh, fascinated, uh, impressed with, the, uh, with what you shared uh, and with the facilities as well. Tell us everything about it. So La Finca at first was um, was not a project or an entrepreneurial journey. It was more um, a farm where I wanted to reach uh, autosufficiency and uh, and grow my own food and have a place where I where I just uh, feel connected to nature. And um, during the confinement um, um, in Corona time. I realized, wow, well, now talking about supply chain, uh, like Alex was uh, explaining, um, we need to rethink about how we actually get from where we get our food, how and why, which were questions I was already uh, asking myself, but it was becoming more urgent and more uh, real for everyone. And I was in almost autosufficiency for uh, for vegetables and uh, for fruits for that season in particular. Um, and I realized why not try to implement this for other farms and on an even bigger scale on uh, villages and things like that, which we don't do anymore. We don't have a diversity in the cultures. What you see is uh, one region specialized in one uh, crop in particular, and then we destroy the soil and then we go find another region to plant the same crop and it goes like this. Um, So I decided to just make the model I wanted to see um, on a bigger scale, but in a very small uh, place to make it work. Coming back to you, Alex Karim, um, tell us more about Farmon and, and this uh, notion of uh, collecting the, the best practices to pass them on. Yeah, so, so basically like farm, what Farmon really wants to do is, is we want to rewire and, and reconnect the stakeholders that are pushing towards... Um, the types of, of farming that um, that uh, people like Aida are, are working on, and uh, namely, we've got a lot of, of um, like the, the current state. I mean, you, you've just got to imagine that you have massive projects um, of agricultural transition. You have individual farms that are that are looking to transition, like Aida's, but you also have massive projects where the government will want to transition an entire landscape to agroforestry or an entire region uh, will want to, um, uh, you know, plant some perennials or, or add some cover crops or do, you know, certain practices to increase, say, I don't know, water retention capacity of the soil. Um, and, and the way it kind of works today is that you have an agency that will consult and make a proposal and a plan based on, on data that's sort of really based on averages. Um, and uh, with a formula that uh, an expert in the field will take from a deep Excel sheet in the folders of their folders. Um, and then the project coordinator has to sort of get all this data and say, okay, well, I think if we do this, then this is going to be the outcome. They make a proposal for a transition plan of that landscape, and then they hand it over. So it's not their responsibility 
um, then the government has to monitor and check for themselves. Um, and I'm not really sure how thorough that is in most cases. So what our, our vision of the world is really one where when you are about to make an investment in regenerative forms of, of agriculture, we can call it agroecology, um, you already know what practices are going to lead to which outcomes. So you can sort of scenario plan your investment and you can de-risk your investments just because it's already been proven that you know your return on regenerative agriculture is can be fairly high um and then that it's really easy to monitor that as as you sort of progress um so you've kind of got uh a data-driven way of, of of pushing regenerative agriculture which is then complemented by what farmers do best is know their land know their business you know connect to their land be in touch with the nuances of how their land might express um, whether things are going well or not. I mean, they're they're very attuned to certain indicators, let's call them, that uh, you know a machine might not pick up on, right? Um, so, so how do you? The question is, how do you complement that farmer intuition with data, and have both? That was Hannah Bezad, our correspondent in North Africa. Hannah was speaking to two young entrepreneurs in the tech and agriculture space, Aida Benuna, founder of La Finca Agroecology, and Alex Karim Howard, the founder of Farm On. And with that, we come to the end of our show today. Many thanks to our guests and to you for tuning in, whether you tuned in online, via your favorite podcast platforms, or on our website at voaafrica.com or through our FM and shortwave stations around the world. Remember to connect with us on our social media platforms. We are at VOA Upfront on Facebook and on Instagram. Until next time, I'm Jackson Bungani in Washington, wishing you a great